Welcome, uh, ladies and gentlemen, to another Anatomy Movie. Today we dissect Moonlight, quite a movie, um, so let's get to it. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk, we talk movies. And now, here's Popcorn Talk's Anatomy of a Movie. <laughs> That's right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Moonlight. Um, a lot of you fans of Anatomy of a Movie have been dying for us to do this movie, and so we have listened to your request. I believe the only one we have yet to f- do is uh, is Lion after this. Yeah. Right? That's yeah. a great film, too. Um, so, but, but Moonlight we're doing today. Um, we have Dimitri Panos. Hello, movie fans. Marissa Serafini. Hello, everyone. And uh, so, if you're a returning fan, obviously, you got your wish. And if you're a new fan, well, uh, welcome. Thank you, first and foremost, for joining us. <laughs> Secondly, understand that this is uh, will be spoiler-filled, right? So we're going to talk story and various other production elements and so forth. But we do it under the guise that you have seen the movie. Or maybe you just don't mind getting spoiled. So Yeah. So you have been forewarmed. As always, let's start with overall impressions. I like this song from the movie. This is a good song. Sure. I like it. it they, they played it like three times in this film. Yeah. Marissa Serafini. Overall uh, thoughts for um, Moonlight. Overall, uh, I, I liked the human aspect. I mean, we've talked about other films that needed a human connection, and I felt this was a really real human story. I personally am not... Uh, I didn't grow up in the Miami area, so I don't know really what the mentality is like around that. Um, so I, I kind of got that sense of what that community is and that harsh life that most of them grew up in. Um, I, I thought... There was some the the performances were great from everybody. Um, the the and I can definitely understand why a lot of these actors are getting nominated for acting awards. Um, the performances definitely shown. I think one of the issues for me was the cinematography and pacing of this film that made me as a watcher have a hard time like still keeping up with this film even though the story was great just watching it was slightly painful interesting not really slightly but it was really painful <laughs> That's sli- and by slightly and i was trying to be nice but did the first 20 minutes was seriously <clears throat> jarring for me it like it, i wanted to vomit mm. um but overall i'm glad the movie had a nice progression throughout that actually made me like there are a lot of qualities about this film that i enjoyed and Dimitri? Yeah, I mean, for me, uh, this movie, well, it's, it's a poignant character study buoyed by fantastic uh, performances across the board. Like, across the board. Some, we'll talk about later, like, really blew me away. Like, Naomi Harris. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- th- this is money penny. Uh, and you knew from watching James Bond, she's a very beautiful, attractive woman. Uh, who can hold her own against James Bond. But in this movie, I think she's a tour de force. Well, there's a connection there that we'll talk about. <laughs> yes. Uh, Janelle uh, Monet again, uh, continue Great. to, you know, blaze this trail. I think she has star quality uh, in her. And I, and I also believe that we should get Janelle Monet and Naomi Harris in a movie together. Um, but in any case, um, just so, some amazing performances. And... Uh, I think that this movie, you know, it's a, in three acts. That's what this movie is. It's based off a play. It doesn't look like a play. Like, Fences was very playish, mm-hmm. right? This movie, to me, was not playish, other than the fact that it literally was in three acts. And it's a story, to me, of human connection, 
from within and from without. Uh, and I thought that the screenplay, I found the screenplay to be tender, tragic, um, and ultimately hopeful, which was, I, I thought, great. And while the movie's protagonist is a gay black man, I felt uh, the movie's themes transcend that and become universal with that human connection, that everybody can relate to this movie. That, to me, is what makes this movie special. Absolutely. Yeah, um, you know, I'm, I'm I I think this movie's absolutely fantastic. It's done with such um lovingness and tender. Um, you know, the only flaw that I saw with it, much like Marissa, I thought the cinematography it just uh it just kept moving too much, you know. I'm all for movement and I'm all for not having to like lock down the camera and have to have the smoothest movement. But it was a little bit too much throughout the entire movie, or just it settled through? down. It settled down, mm-hmm. right? Um, but the first, I would say, maybe twenty minutes, um, it, it was just nonstop. Yeah, and I'm not going to argue because to me, it was sort of kind of, and we know that we're not dealing with a first time filmmaker uh, here, but it felt like first time filmmaker folly, mm-hmm. in which they feel that they have to be innovative. And we got to be flashy and move the camera around and show how cool that we can be. The opening shot, um, to me, sort of kind of went on a little bit too long. Yeah, way too You know, it was that one track, but it kind of was spinning around. And that's what wanted to make me vomit. I was like, if the whole film is like this, I cannot handle it. Yeah, and I, and I, wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with you, but it, it settled down. It did remind me, as a comparison, um, if you uh, the movie Hell or High Water... Christopher Pine, Jeff Bridges. It, too, has a, a somewhat complicated opening shot that, to me, that shot was used precise, and it was with a plum, and it succeeded. Where this one, I agree with you. It's sort of kind of... Well, well, when say- are we going to stop? And I hope the whole movie is not that way, and it wasn't, thankfully. And the yeah. rest of the movie, pacing. Again, for pacing, which you brought up, last week we did Jackie, and we said it was a short movie that felt... Like it was four hours. To me, when the move this movie ended, I was like, "Oh, it's over! Wow, okay." Oh, you well, felt? I didn't short. feel that the pacing in this movie, and it's ten. It's about ten minutes longer, I believe, than Jackie is. No. But I don't know why. I just between performances and dialogue, and I, I got involved. I got wrapped up in this movie, so that when it was over, I was like, "Wow, that didn't feel like forever." Wow. No. For me. That's surprising because I felt like this was a long movie that felt like a long movie. Mm. Pacing. And it was under another movie that's under two hours. But it felt, but it felt like a two and a half hour movie. Did you have the same issues as well? Um, th- there were certain parts that I felt were a little bit longer, but, you know, that's also part of the appeal of the movie. I mean, uh, you know, for me, I, I did enjoy those... I, there, there, there were certain moments that I did enjoy, and that's sort of... Like, for example, at the end of the movie... We could have, if you trimmed it down, you could get from him meeting Kevin to sort of the end of it in a much faster way. But then I don't know if it would have had the same impact, right? And so I, I, I think they, they found a somewhat of a good balance, you know. And I, I liked the editing aspect of it in terms of their insert shots. I thought that worked really well. Um, going back to your point really quickly about the opening shot. Um, what's the other? Uh, um, the guy who did Citizen Kane, Orson Welles, right? Orson Welles. Uh, what's Orson the Welles. other movie, like the the famous tracking shot? Uh, Touch of Evil. Touch of Evil. Touch of Evil. Yeah. 
Right. The, the, you know, much like with um, Hell or High Water, it's it sort of serves a purpose, right? It's say, setting something up that you don't quite know what's about to happen, and then boom, you see it on screen, and, and it happens. So Touch of Evil and, and, and Hell or High Water have that. Versus this, nothing's really happening. They're just talking. So it's not like you're setting up for like a boom or like a, a something to happen. You're just sort of seeing things. Right. And in fairness, the, the opening shot to Touch of Evil was fairly slow. It moved in one direction slowly backwards, just following two people. This one was way more kinetic when it didn't need to be. It was just a simple conversation looking upon other people in the neighborhood. And I think it was just too overblown just in lighting, too. It was it was hard to look at because it was so bright, and it was hard to follow because it was constantly moving. I'm like, who am I supposed to be paying attention to? The guy who just drove up in his car or the other guy he's talking to? Like, I couldn't see what, like, who's the establishing character in this film. Yeah, I, I mean, and again, I don't, I don't disagree. Uh, this technique, you know, uh, Alfonso Caron, uh, you could say is, you know, it's obviously Orson Welles, an originator of this one-shot take uh you know, greats like Brian De Palma, John Carpenter have all used this. Of recent, Alfonso Cuaron has made it hit one of his signatures, in which his, um, which a colleague of his, um, uh, the Revenant gentleman, whose name I can't think. Um, yeah, you talking about the cinematographer? Yeah, Inaratu. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, well, I'm talking about the, like the director. They're doing all these like one shot tracking shots. Uh, they even did it in a Bond movie. They did it. In the, the opening of Spectre gives that one. It's becoming more commonplace, and how can we make it <clears throat> flashier or whatever? This is a very low budget movie, you know, not near the budgets of perhaps the other ones, with the exception of maybe Citizen Kane and Touch of Evil, but mm-hmm. not counting for inflation. It, it again to me, like you said, what was the purpose? It was, and and again, Barry Jenkins is not a first time director, but it's but although like, it's been a while, it's been a while, and this is only a second. I get it, but it seems like this is the type of thing that you forgive a first-time director when he or she makes a really good film, and mm. they try to put in like, "Hey, this is what I can do," um, and then they settle down in their future films. Uh, luckily, fortunately, this some, it it didn't bother me as much as it bothered you two, but I completely understand what you're saying, mm. and you're right. What was the point of making it so long? So let's uh, let's let's not spend too much time on <laughs> the opening shot alone, uh, and then we'll we'll but definitely. It's, t- it's worth dissecting. I mean, I, you know, we'll throw it out to the audience. I think again, you know, I'd be interested to know this movie is getting such a such applause. It's definitely. I'm glad we talked about it. Well, okay. So here, normally we start with story, but since we're strictly on that, um, here's how I can expand it, but stay on the, sort of the subject matter. Um, they wanted to, and th- to me this is quite interesting, right? Um, between Jenkins and um, his collaborator, um, James Laxton, who, who shot the movie, they chose to not do a documentary look, which is ironic for me because it kind of looked in that way, but they used CinemaScope on Ari Alexa cameras. Um, now, you know, what, what, what that allowed them to do was the... Um, you know, something that we don't always talk about, but the coloring of a film. Absolutely. And they, they chose very much to have sort of three distinct looks where, uh, because they shot digitally, they made the first part of it look like Fuji stock film. <laughs> the second part, um, 
Agfa. I've never um, experienced that film stock, but um, Agfa film stock, um, which was great for um, Scion. And then uh, the last part was Kodak. So they didn't shoot it on those, but they very much intentionally colorized it as if it were those three different right. film stocks. Interesting. Um, and Dimitri, you obviously have a, um, quite a history with um, coloring and renditions. Sure. Um, having worked at Technicolor. So just, just I guess, in, in, in a layman's sense, like, what is the difference in all of those? And, and what, what... The best way to describe it, because I think this is something that translates today because vinyl is so popular mm-hmm. and the vinyl purists will talk about the depth of the sound and such. When you're talking about those film stocks, they do add a depth of color and or grain that, and we've seen this happen. Um, uh, um, uh, the, the Rushmore, uh, Rushmore. Guy, guy who directed Rushmore and Moonrise Kingdom. Hmm. Uh, oh, uh, Anderson. 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 Yeah, he always is using he's using different anamorphic lenses and film stocks because it, it sets a feeling. It can set a tone. Um, this movie it makes sense because we're seeing it's it's almost like a truncated boyhood, <laughs> except they use different actors, That's right? What I thought yeah. it was like, um, <clears throat> and like you get a different sense of a time period and or feel. Uh, for the movie, and that you can fix certain things up too digitally, so it will add a different color palette, and it'll show it can show the growth of this boy into manhood, and how from a man he's he's different than the boy, but he's still coping with the same things. But it's also a different time period as well. It's I believe it's sixteen plus years mm. that that we're following. Right? I found it the most interesting that they chose to film this movie in what they call CinemaScope. So they, they, they film this in scope, which is a more rectangular... For, for, you know, I'm sure our audience is savvy to this, but just for filmmaking 101, you're, you're, whether it's digital or not, the director at the very beginning of the shoot has to make a conscious decision. How am I going to film this? What am I going to do? Am I going to do it flat, which is more of a square, or am I going to do this in scope, which is more of the rectangular... Look, it fills up the screen more. It's what, when you get it on Blu-ray, you see it as in letterbox. Um, it's the reason why there are movie curtains on screens. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they come in on a flat movie because it's more square, and in a scope movie, they, they, they pull them off to the sides. This movie looked beautiful f- for it being low budget. Um, and I was just very surprised that they went with that because that also increases your color palette, your detail, yeah. uh, and when you're doing a close-up, if you're zooming in, uh, you get much more depth. Uh, and then with post and what you're able to do, like I did think that this movie looked good from a color scheme, and I got the sense from each time period that they were filming from his young years to his teenage years in high school to when he was an adult in Atlanta and going back to Miami. So. I think that's interesting you brought that up because I, f- I thought the first half, when he was a child, when he was little, quote-unquote, um, I thought the, the coloring and the white was like too washed out and I couldn't see a lot of the detail. And that's why I thought it was hard to watch okay. because it was too bright and too harsh just on the eyes to look at. Uh, I thought progressively it got better with the color and it, it tend to tone down as he matured um, and I enjoyed that. But you, learning that it's on three different types of 
you know, film. They emulated the yeah. stock. So. Well, you know, the look more so that reminds me of another film that we dissected, Jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Michael Fassbender's Jobs. Sure. Where they had Danny essentially, Boyle. Yeah, where it essentially had three acts, and they did actually use three different types of yeah. film for to display the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. But that, not once did I have a hard time watching. You know. Yeah, I mean, I didn't have that hard time watching this. Um, I think it settled down. It, 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 it did settle yeah, down. It progressively got better. From the moving of the camera. But again, for me, it sort of kind of set up, number one, there were scenes where little Sharon, or even teenage Sharon, was in the the Miami projects, what we'll mm-hmm. call them for now, uh, where he's with his mom, played by Naomi Harris. Had a completely different look than when he was with uh, Juan and his and Janelle Monae. Yeah. When he was there, it was more welcoming, more homey. Um, when he was at home, I mean, there were scenes. Not only did they use color to me, but they used silence. And there were scenes with Naomi Harris, like she would be screaming at him, but it was in silence. But you could read her lips. There's nothing clear about the intent of what she was saying. And to me, it was frightening. And it was like, wow. And again, that just goes back to had a distinct look and feel than when he was not there, I felt. So well, what I, going I hope that helps, and I hope it wasn't too long. No, I it, hope it, it gave it a sense of, you know, and like I liken it to vinyl because that's so popular and that's what it's like. Yeah, I mean, the, the most interesting part to me, um, you know, the, the, the full sort the play that never got made, um, the full title is In Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue, right? Um, and we'll talk a little bit more in depth about that. But but in going off of that title, um, in terms of the color palette, well, uh, you know, you would sort of expect that. And that was the interesting thing to me was that no matter – they used blue lighting a lot and to make the black boy look blue in sort of what – you know, in, in, in darkness. Because it, was, it wasn't always moonlight, you know, like for example when, uh, when he finally gets the – I think he's when he gets to Kevin's home or, or he's at his home, um, you know, he's in sort of the kitchen. Or sorry, it's when they're counting the money before he goes right. to Kevin. Right. right. He's in and he's very much blue. Um, so I appreciated that, that, that regardless of the emulation of film stock, that was consistent. Yeah, absolutely. And let's talk about the title for a moment because it does refer to light, color. You know, the title Moonlight uh, refers to shining light in darkness or illuminating things you're afraid to show. Uh, everybody in life has had a struggle like Sharon's at some point. And this is where I go, the universality of this movie. Uh, whether it's for a short period of time or an entire lifetime, anyone who insists they haven't put up a facade is living in some kind of darkness. This totally falls into our conversation right now of using or emulating film stocks, mm-hmm. using lighting, it's coming out of the light. It's it's hiding something, and and again, I you know I do regret, and I'll say this, you know, I would have liked to had someone on the panel, you know, who who was of African American descent. Let's say, um, not that we didn't try, but you know, I think it lends because I'm looking at it from, I don't care if you're black, white, yellow, brown, plaid, like I don't care. No. You set across a really good story that said something, and at your low minimal budget of less than five million, I believe, 
I thought they worked. Yes, the cinematography got a little bit, you know, it gets dizzying. But I think as the movie progressed, and by the time we got to that final shot at the movie, that was a that was a that was a great shot, both with him and um, Steve. Is that it? Uh, Kevin. Kevin. Him yeah. and Kevin. And then the shot of him pulling up as as the little boy at the beach who yeah. turns around in the moonlight. I thought that was great. Yeah. Um, you know what? What? What I enjoyed it about it. One of the most surprising things was that it, it did end so. I can't say 100% like it was the happiest ending of all time, but there was that sense of, um, you know, that things perhaps were going to get better or like, the, the, I don't know. There's a light at the end of the tunnel, if you want to use that cliche. It was it was a little more hopeful. <laughs> yeah, no, agreed. And I think it shows now watching, you know, the whole film and his watching his whole journey and what he went through and the people that he had to deal with knowing that at the end he might actually have someone in his life that he can love um, and who can you know show him affection that he actually truly needs and deserves in his life I, I, I liked how it had a happier ending for how he began right mm-hmm. but let's face it you know Moonlight just adds to the slate of 2016 films that were just heavy <laughs> you know I mean just heavy and in some cases they don't end in a happy it's not a happy ending you know I mean I'm, I'm starving right now for a funny comedy <laughs> a Lego Batman movie I'm telling you <laughs> I believe you I, I, I'm starving for that kind of a movie that's why when Hidden Figures uh, came out I was like oh my god <laughs> it was such a stark difference to some of the movies like Moonlight like Manchester by the Sea um, they had yeah. comedy in it. It had light moments. It had moments where you're <clears throat> supposed to laugh. Yeah, and, and, and this, this movie, was not. no, it's it's. I'm not going to say that it was as heavy as Manchester by the Sea, but it deals with heavy real life uh, issues uh, mm-hmm. that are as relevant today as whatever time period this movie, um, you know, was was set to was was set in. So. Um, so so let's let's uh, let's start sort of with the backstory of how because uh, we we mentioned that it was based on a play that never got made. Um, so let's let's sort of backtrack and start there, and then we'll we'll head into story. Um, Marissa, you want to sort of break it down in a nutshell? Uh, yeah, I think what's really interesting you had uh, McCraney, uh, Terrell McCraney, who wrote the the story, and he's actually really well educated. He went to Yale and. Um, School of Drama. And he's and, a prominent playwright, too. Yeah, and he had the uh, graduate and MacArthur Genius. A so, MacArthur Genius recipient in 2013. Recipient, yeah. So, like, he, he's very well established in his the writing career. But uh, he grew up as a gay man in South Central Miami. And he felt their result just, you know, it's not, it's kind of semi-autobiographical for him. But there are he can he completely relates to this story, and he he wrote this play, um, or more so he wrote the story kind of in the playwright form. But while he re- wrote it, he realized there are a lot of scenes that just could not be physically executed on a theater. Then he knew the juxtapositions of some scenes and some right. shots could only be translated well onto okay. film, and that's how it got more adapted into a film screenplay than an actual theater play. But and, and again, like we said on top, this literally is a movie in three acts. Nope. You know? Um, which again, I think it makes it, from a budgetary standpoint, efficient. Uh, also, 
you don't want a three act movie to run, you know, over three, three hours, hours either. <laughs> you know. So oh, I think, be. right? That, that that could have been rough, um, but it didn't feel stagey to me. Outside yeah. of maybe the opening twenty minute shot in which you know yeah the camera move, but it didn't feel stagey. Uh, the dialogue seemed real to me too, as well as, and I think that the dialogue coupled with the fantastic performances. You know, it was just it me. It looked and felt like a movie, um, definitely not a play. And I'm glad. I'm glad that this. I'm glad that a I got to see it. That I was able to see it, um, because I do. I think that it's a movie that's uh, deserving of praise that it's been getting. Yep. You know, it looks good. Um, yeah, and, and um, you know, it's it's an interesting connection between McCartney and um, Jenkins that 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 they well they grew up. In, in Liber- the neighborhood, yeah. In Liberty City, yeah. in 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 that sort of near that neighborhood, um, they went to the same school together. Mm-hmm. Outside of them being some years apart, like they were never. They, I should say, strike that, reverse it. They went to the same school while not together. They still were at that. They, they mm-hmm. still had that experience of being there in that neighborhood together, yeah. and that I found is a. So what a weird coincidence! <laughs> like it's it's a small connection, world, you know? yeah. Absolutely, and so you know, it ended up the, the collaboration between the two ends up being uh, fantastic because you know uh, it was it, it was Jenkins' sort of idea to break it down into a three act type of structure, um, but then he also kept it very much um, you know about a gay man, mm-hmm. and sort of the, he kept that thematic element in there, um, which he could have. You know, easily taken away and 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 whatever, but he felt it was important. You know, and that was also part of the story that um, that McCartney was trying to, or uh, sorry, uh, yeah, um, he was trying to have in there. You know, and, right. and, and be part of the message. So, um, you know, it, it ended up working out. Yeah, quite well. And Jenkins himself is not a is not a gay about black man. But I think he was able to work uh, with McGraney. And, and being that they had... the, the I mean, their, their backgrounds are sort of uncanny. They each had mothers who were addicts. Um, and I know uh, uh, Jenkins' mother, I believe, is, is, is fighting through HIV, but still alive, where I believe McGraney's mother had passed away through her addiction and disease. But... Their background, but because they, they they were the same rough and tumble Liberty City housing projects, and I just find that there's that common thread, and I think that's what makes the movie universal, mm-hmm. you know, and it gives a, a universal voice, and it doesn't. That's why I think it's very important to get out there that this isn't just a gay movie, this isn't just a, a black movie, and. It really did a fine job of, of 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 walking that line, and 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 making it like you know, like I said, I've said the word universal a bazillion times already, but that's thematically no. what it is. They didn't pigeonhole themselves. Which no, they didn't. But but at the same time, what, what you know, going back to the earlier notion that it ended on a positive note. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think anyone in their life, but especially if you are. Let's say, for lack of a better term, uh, lesser income or, or whatever, um, you know, because the structure of it 
almost it creates the cycle of like because we meet Juan and then he essentially becomes Juan, right? Uh, but right. then, but then yeah. offers that notion that you can break the cycle that you don't that that if you're in this type of situation, um, you can break the cycle. Which is again, you can look at anything in life of of you know you, most people's lives can be cyclical if they look at it. And the idea is, well, how do I break that cycle? Well, you can. You know, and it's interesting that you that you bring that up because the original, you know, McCraney's uh, adaptation, his his screenplay, or, um, you know, Jenkins worked on the screenplay and he broadened it. Um, originally, the adult aspect of the movie, the adult interlude in Sharon's life, that was just a mere phone call, which and it could have been that phone call in which Kevin calls him, mm-hmm. you know, really nice moment. But that's all it was. And Jenkins, to his credit, I think, adds the interlude, which says, yeah, I can break off that. Because he was so Juan, he even had that crown in his car that Juan probably Mm -hmm. gave him, right? Um, But it also strengthens this three-act story because it gives us an arc to follow. And it breaks the cycle. Absolutely. Um, I, I 100% agree. Um, one of the interesting techniques, um, and I want to get your guys' take on this, because it seems counterintuitive in a sense to me. Um, the people, so, right, we, you, you had mentioned Boyhood, and Boyhood was, obviously we follow the same actors for a number of periods to, to, to showcase their growth. Here you have, as we mentioned, the different actors for both Kevin um and and Chiron, they he he purposefully made it so that they would never meet until after filming. Which, what's your guys? Let's, Marissa, let's the, start the with the actual you. actors never met until after filming. I think that's great because I feel like sometimes if you do meet other people who are trying to portray the same character as you, like it won't make your own performance like individual. Or it won't make it, you know, like that special or like you, you, your true self or your true actor and like your own things to it. So I think that's kind of great. And it, that's a nice fact that I didn't know because I believe them in their three different stages. Like Little, I believed he was that that embodiment of however young of an age he was. They all felt like completely different in those different stages of life, even though it was technically the same character. And I think it worked. I believed it. I I agree with you a hundred percent. And you hit it on the nose uh, with me in saying by keeping them separated, each actor was able to literally make the character of Sharon their own character without extrapolating or taking from somebody else, and then adding a mannerism. Let's say um, there was no mannerism outside of the quietness, but I think that's just part of the story. There was no mannerism that carried through, which is fine for me, because each stage that character had gone from being a boy to a teenager, the actors made it their own, and then even to adulthood. He clearly, the teenager and the little boy, he clearly grown up, and again, that actor, each actor made the role their own without having to rely on what the other person might have been. Because sometimes an actor will do that. They'll try to mimic that other person. I think keeping them separated until the end worked. But, but, but I'm shocked by the fact that, that to me, 
I could have sworn <clears throat> that they worked on something. Um, because there was a, to me there was a consistency throughout. You know, and granted, it's in the script of like you know he likes food and whatever. But but honestly, like if you for me, I've only seen it once. But if you go back and watch it, just even the way he holds a cigarette or or joint is exactly the same. You know, and granted that could be Barry giving the direction of hold hold it this way. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting enough that that they do feel like it is the same character, yeah. and to me they do have the same mannerisms. And, yeah, you know, so it does seem a little bit counterintuitive. Now, add to that, by the way, here's a greater challenge. If, if that's what you're going for, then that makes, then in a sense, you could do that. Now, mind you, here's how they have to pull this off. They're sharing, because of budget, all actors are sharing basically the same trailer, number one. Number two, because of um, um, the, the mother Paula, Naomi, she only has three days because of Spectre to shoot. And she interacts with... She's the only person in this entire movie who's interacting with all three versions. So how do they not cross paths? Yeah. That's the most intriguing part to me. Yeah. Now, listen, and I get what you're saying about mannerisms, but that type of a man... I'm talking about sometimes an actor, male, female, will add their own, like, you know, like a facial tick or something that they do with their hands or something. Holding a joint, the director can say, okay... You have to. I want you to hold it this way. He doesn't even have to give an explanation as to why I want you to hold it this way, but I want you to, you know, they could do that. I felt that the casting of these boys, in you know, boys, teenagers, and men, it made complete sense to me. That's why I say it's a truncated boyhood in the fact that casting works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The old, I could see that young boy. And when you look at the, this poster, um... Yeah, I mean, poster that's behind us. The poster that's behind us. It's um, it's a poster where it highlights all three. Look at the eyes. The eyes are very similar. That's what can give it away to the eyes. The casting in this movie was spectacular, and it really worked. Uh, Especially if it couldn't hinge on the people who played Sharon through his various life stages, the movie falls apart. You know, horribly, Absolutely. in fact. So uh, I think that they did a great, great uh, job uh, in, in, in doing that. And it's very interesting how. They um, did open calls. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. It's not like they saw actors for these particular roles necessarily. Like In, in the sense that, oh, we have this person in mind. Yeah. So, so you know, and the uh, casting director... Uh, um, Yesi Ramirez, uh, she hails from Miami, uh, and Ramirez was studying to be a juvenile public defender. And she worked frequently at with at-risk kids in Florida, so she had, she was able to pull that insight as to what am I looking for when I'm looking for a little Sharon or for you know trouble teen, a trouble teen, and you know Jenkins and Romansky come. They comb the streets, post casting notices. They went into schools. Ultimately, they discovered uh, Hibbert and put him on tape for others to see. And when Ramirez saw his audition, immediately impressed by his, you know, his, his intense vulnerability, which he showed. I mean, as a kid actor, for, for, he did a great job. Everyone felt, and, and they knew instantly that, that he was going to be the one. So he was great. Yeah, and think about it. like that. He has to open the movie. <laughs> It's right. not like you can then start to be like, okay, well, we know what he's supposed to be, and you can forgive little flaws. Like, 
he is the movie at the beginning. Yeah. And uh, then when we go to Sharon at age I 16. Think, sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 no. I think that's what kind of confused me at the beginning because we had a big establishing shot on Mahershala Ali's character, Juan. Oh. I was like, okay, yes. he's our main protagonist. And it's actually this kid that we don't see until five minutes later. Um, and I think also because I went into this film knowing little about this film and having already seen previous Academy Awards, I don't know, Academy Awards, but like award shows before that, that Mahershala Ali's getting the recognition and not really these guys who are actually portraying Chiron. So I went in it with a skewed type of perspective of what I should be looking for in this film. Right, and I'm going to argue it's not skewed, Marissa. The reason why is as as movie fans, okay, as, as people, and, and by movie fans, we... we love movies. We go to the movies a lot. We've studied film. And one of the cornerstones of filmmaking is you usually open your movie on who your protagonist and or antagonist may be. This mm-hmm. is the this is who the movie is going to follow. That this movie sort of breaks that tradition. So well, you're not wrong. Let's call it the pretentious yeah. moment of the movie. Right? <laughs> the pretentious well, moment of the movie. You're right. Because now That's I mean, what it is. Here's the thing, right? You're starting off where uh, where 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 uh, Sharon is going to become, right? That's what you're showcasing. Is eventually we will lead to this point in the movie, but you don't know it yet. Mm-hmm. And by the way, the, the camera that's going around, it represents that we're going to be cyclical. So get ready for that too. It comes full circle, literally. Right. So, but you don't know that. Yeah. So talk. You know, we talk about a lot of like with split. You know, the sleight of hand, like the the the, the twists that come at at the end of movies. This was its twist. Yeah. And it was given it to you, but you didn't know it. Well, mm-hmm. let me throw in something. Let me throw in another let me throw in another independent movie that does something sort of similar that that that, that can be argued. The original 1977 Star Wars, you know, can be argued Luke Skywalker is the hero. But really? Because our movie opens up with well, the droids who we see mm-hmm. the movie through and Darth Vader. Yeah. Okay? And Leia. And Leia, but Darth Vader is the main character walking through the door, and people can argue then. Then Lucas took Anakin Skywalker's journey, who became, he becomes, in a sense, the person that we end up following, right? And it's his, uh, um, it's, it's his absolution at the end that Luke Skywalker, as his, as his son, tries to get him to do. So it, it doesn't start off with Luke Skywalker, so to speak, mm-hmm. starts off something completely different. I, you know, I'm making a big leap from Star Wars to this movie, but you just succinctly put it. it in which, right, we're mm-hmm. seeing what Sharon is going to become. Yeah. You know, and, and, and in that case, you know, it really works. And it's cyclical, and it made me dizzy. <laughs> oh, dizzy. Well, maybe that's, the, maybe that's a fact of life. Like, if you go on a merry-go-round, the whole point is get off. Because it is <laughs> sickening. And you don't want to continue that trend. Now, um, Sharon at 16, too, I find interesting. Um, Ashton Sanders uh, was discovered during um, a Los Angeles casting session, and Sanders appeared uh, in uh, Straight Outta Compton. He had a brief role, uh, but he stood out for his stillness and passive, uh, impassivity. Crucial actor boots for the 16-year-old at Sharon. I thought he was fantastic. I loved him. Right? He was great. Wasn't he great? See, I, I think it is also because his physicality, also, he was tall. You can tell he grew up physically, but, like, he wasn't really in his own self yet. Sort of gangly. Like, yeah, very gangly, very lanky. And, like, he lanky. hasn't lo- 
like literally grown into himself yet. You can tell that he was awkward at moments, the way he walked, the way he held himself. Um, it was still kind of hunched over. Yeah, I, I noticed a lot. Not, I'm not saying all, but like a lot of tall people tend to hunch over to try to make them look shorter. And I felt he had a lot of that because, like, again, it just showed his insecurity when he was hunching over and like literally recoiling his physicality. Um, but I thought he was great because I felt so much for him as a teenager, someone who goes through bullying and like totally relate to that. And people picking on him, and he obviously doesn't deserve it then at the end where he kind of got his moment i'm like yeah you go sharon even though yeah it kind of ended up badly for him but he had his moment and i really enjoyed it well i want to talk a little bit too regarding um sanders his role and and the little boy because i think it's important because there were key scenes in those first two acts for me one of the key scenes comes at the end towards the end of the first act where little Sharon is talking with Juan, okay, uh, and and um, I forget the mom's name, but you know Juanita's character, Paula. Oh, oh uh, Teresa. 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 Uh, she's not the mom, but yes, the, the mom like. <clears throat> and little Sharon, it goes into this conversation, which pretty much starts with, "What's a faggot?" And Juan and Teresa explain, you know, uh, very responsibly what it is. And that, you don't have to worry about that now. You're too young. You don't have to find your way right now. Don't worry about it. It's okay. Whatever, you know? Then he, the follow-up question, which is pretty much where that act ends, is where he goes, Juan, do you sell drugs? And Juan just puts his head down. Well, because we don't want to believe that Juan sells drugs because inherently he's a good man. Yeah. You know? I mean, he could be a good father. As he's doing with Sharon, right? But that question cripples him because he knows what he's doing. There's not going to be a good, good influence. And how can he teach this boy about, you know, the, 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 you know, the viciousness of a word and what homosexuality is? And how can he teach that boy the virtues when he himself is not a virtuous person? I found it to be great. And then we go into the 16-year-old in high school. High school is awkward for, can be for anybody. Everybody. Right? Now we're dealing with a kid who notices his, what his proclivity is towards. And he has his friend Kevin. And one of the, you know, the the key scene and how it was played out was the scene of Kevin and Sharon on the beach. And again, you take that from that first act and now the teenage who's starting to come into himself, you know, and then th- how that how the second act ends, like I felt, oh my, I I almost like applauded when he came in because he and and the way that the you know the way he walked into that school, like you could tell he, he was straightening mission. up. Yeah. He had a mission. He was straightening up. And there was a scene where he almost faltered, and he's like, "No," and he it was just a it was a wonderfully shot, performed scene. Walks into the class, and you're like, "Ooh!" And then, oh, he's just gonna sit down. Oh no, he picks up the chair and just bashes the kid in, and you're like, "Good mm-hmm. for you!" And then exactly. he gets arrested. 
Yeah. There I are consequences yeah. for your actions. Yeah. But at least that kid got what he deserved. Right. Which sounds terrible, but if you watch the film, you'll understand. <laughs> and he never gave up the kid, but you would have figured that maybe a teacher would have like stuck up for him and going, yeah, we know that this kid's a punk. Right. Anyways, but... But essentially, like, in in adult eyes or a teenager or any school, you know, that is technically uh, assault, so... Well, what, what, what was what those kids, the kids did to did him? Was that was assault, assaulted. too. There were... Plenty of witnesses. Those kids didn't get hauled off. I know, and that was frustrating. But I did love that conversation with the, I want to say, principal or whoever was that, the person managing. It's like, if you were a man, there'd be other people in this room with you. You know, and I was like, yeah, people need to take responsibility for this. And yet, again, that showed his vulnerability that he's, again, he's not sticking up for himself like he should, whereas other people would have had the responsibility. It, 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 you know, one of the things, in, in terms of the second, right, uh, talking about Sharon, I, I, there's a line in the third act that, that Paula says to him, like, you know, I never get, I don't care if, I know you, you don't have to love me because I didn't never, I didn't give you the love that you needed when you needed it, so I don't mind if you hate me. Um, and so the second act to me is really the, the embodiment of that is this is when he needs sort of love the most and he's not getting it. I mean, no. th- th- for her to go like, hey, you got money. I know you got money. Um, <laughs> it's a it's a powerful thing of like, you know, especially he's coming to adulthood, but this is what he's sort of been around. Yeah. And, and I'll go. There was another just powerful scene. And again, when we talk about color palette, because there were there were in each act, there was a scene in which Sharon, whether he was little Sharon, teenage Sharon, adult Sharon, in a dream, looking at the hallway, and the mother's there, and uh, there was that one, I believe it was little Sharon, and it was silent. And she, like, literally she says, you're not mine. And she just screams it so vehemently. And, like, I saw that, I was like, whoa, like... Again, the way it was directed, the way it was performed, very powerful scenes. And this is why I really felt that Naomi Harris was a tour de force in this movie. From the beginning, we saw her transformation as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She, in a sense, at the at the beginning with little Sharon, you could tell that she loved her little boy, you know, had... had or cared for him, know, at least, right. yeah, about his well-being. But then when we saw Juan, and he's like, who the hell's that? Who's in that car? And then when we find out that it's her, you're like, oh, oh, wow. You know, I mean, um, again, movie that had these powerful moments in it, but it perpetuated a story. And uh, I thought they were great. Yeah, even her character at the end. And I didn't really expect it that, like, (laughs) she, in a way, kind of redeemed herself a little bit when when it got to the point where she realized her faults and she is taking responsibility for her actions of her younger self, um, like I like that because then I just felt for her, you know. At the end, I was like, okay, and, at least she knows. And to her credit, as you said, she's the only actor who had to work with each incarnation of Sharon, and she got older, and she acted outside of her makeup. You know, she. You know, you don't look at it and go, wow, that's not the best makeup job in the world. But instead you say, she acted, you know, and fantastic. Can't say enough. 
Yeah, she she especially for me that uh, the ending scene. And uh, let's talk about her because she was very hesitant to take on this role. Uh, I mean, you know, I mean, think about it. So, um, you know, I mean, how, how often do you want to portray a crack addict? You, right. You know, you know what I mean. And, and she was very skeptical for that reason. She's always, I mean, we we talk about it a lot. You know, uh, just the last movie with with Britt Robertson. You know that we're in in a search for great female actors and, and right. great roles for women in general, and <laughs> there you are of like, hey, can you play a crack addict? Not the best life. However, in through the discussions with both um, the writer and director uh, McCartney and, and Jenkins, uh, they they because of that connection that that there wa- that was their mom and how they sort of handled it. And also the script itself, she was like, "Okay, I'm willing to do this." Yeah, and and you're talking about, you know, she's an she's an actress uh, who doesn't drink, smoke, use drugs, um, and she found that she had to make up a lot of her story in her head to bring this character to life. And you know, she says, "Paul is a working woman who isn't just dabbling in drugs; she's severely addicted over time and becomes a cracked addict, and she constantly choosings her addiction." over her son and yet she still find that that common ground because she found it important playing any character learning to empathize with her and i think because of that to your point that's how you get to her character in the third act you know because you do feel and uh, i think that as an actor that would be appealing you know just as a character role to um, portray because yeah it may be hard to get be quote unquote the crack addict person but to have a moment or a scene you know in a film that can redeem the character after everything she's done I think that's appealing for actors yeah and she prepared heavily um, you know making stuff up but you know she studied the lives and mannerisms of, of many addicts in that time era, in that period, a lot of them were, were prostitutes, and they used drugs to numb and such. And you could see how much the drugs transformed them. So she used a lot of that research, and she put it into her role. Um, again, personally, a tour de force, and it took me, it took me a little bit to go. Why is this woman so familiar? And then when it done. That's money, Penny. <laughs> like, oh, oh, it was. That's what I love about fantastic actors, and I want to see her continue to be money, Penny, uh, for as long as she can. But I love the fact that she can branch out and almost be chameleon-like and play a role like this. Absolutely. Uh, so I guess by that nature, let's talk about um, the oldest. Let's talk about Black. Um, Trevante Rhodes. That's right. Um, I I really enjoyed him because I he's a fresh face to me. I've never seen him in anything. I thought he was great. Um, like I, I was trying to kind of figure out Black at the stage in his life because it seems like obviously he physically changed. He grew up, and he seemed he was more talkative to you know his peers and stuff. So I wasn't sure if he just became a badass because that was his way to protect himself. Hmm. And but while we spend more time with him. I still believe that he was that shy, timid guy that we saw from the beginning. Oh, absolutely. Even though physically he doesn't look like it anymore. Yeah, and and interestingly enough, that's not the role that he originally read for. He read for the role of adult Kevin. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I also feel he's a he's a track and field star from Louisiana, which gave him the body, the build, um, which made him intimidating when he needed to be intimidating as the mm-hmm. you know his new role in life is one, but. His reading was interrupted by the casting team when it dawned on everybody at once that the muscular, intensely masculine Rhodes was more suited for the role of black. And I think, it, again, it's another case where casting got it right. I don't think as Kevin, you know. No. Yeah, we needed somebody who's going to have try to have the innocence and quietness of the young and middle, you know, young adult Sharon carry that with him uh but yet he's got to be intimidated and and into this life yet still look vulnerable because he's still trying to find his way in the world and i thought that that kid that guy did a great great job great job and also because like yeah he has a physical build and stuff you you might i immediately think he might be a little bit more menacing or threatening and you know just um how he come across but his scene with his mother when he's crying, I'm like, oh, man, this is a grown man literally showing his vulnerable side again. So, like, I thought he was great through and through. Yeah. Yeah. And I give a lot of that to the performance and the director getting exactly what he wants out of his actors. Yeah. Well, think about it this way, too. Uh, it, the whole third act is essentially, like, him collecting a little bit of money. That's it. Then the mother. And then, like, 20 minutes worth of Kevin. You know, and and the way that plays out, um, and they're hanging their head on that, and and those two, I mean, they, they just they they just captivated the screen, you know, and and the awkwardness of the waiting, and then talking, not talking. He really, it, it he reverted in the sense of much like again, I when Juan was feeding him, it was like, so ain't you gonna talk? Ah, uh, you like your food, don't you? And he just kept eating. <laughs> And the interesting thing is, um, you, you mentioned that um, Trevante went in for the role of Kevin, but ended up getting black. It was also the kind of the same story with Andre Holland. He went in to read for Black, and they're like, "No, you'd make a great Kevin." Yeah. So it, it went both ways. Um, I think Andre Holland is a great actor as well. Uh, if you've ever seen The Nick, or um, or you know American Horror Story. Selma, there, there's so 42, many. Yeah, yeah. Selma. They're, they're, he's a great actor in and of himself as well. But yeah. like I, I thought he was a great opposite towards Black, especially in that time of their life, right. where they both came to that mutual understanding. Yeah, agreed. Um, also, add to Andre Holland's uh, resume too. You know, he is familiar with McCartney's work. He starred in several of his plays, including Brothers and the, the Brothers and Sister trilogy. And, you know, it is said that his audition tape as Kevin reduced the casting team to tears, making it instantly clear that he was the right man for the job. Um, You know, you bring up, there was the phone call, Mm -hmm. which is a really interesting phone call. And then then Sharon showing up at at the little diner. And... uh, you're right. That little scene at dinner, like at the thing about drinking and everything, this is a really good scene. And and this is where I say, like, as far as pacing, I was so involved and wrapped up in those moments yeah. that time for me just like it. It was I. It, it sort of kind of it went by quicker than anticipated. Yeah. And I liked this is a this is a movie in which 
when we stayed on these people and heard their conversation. It was conversation worthy of listening to, yeah. uh, I felt. And it was And they took a big risk. They 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 played on the jukebox, they played the song on the jukebox. <clears throat> which is not typical. Right. Normally you just mm-hmm. pretend and then you put it in so cause because the point of that is it makes it very <laughs> difficult to edit. Right. Because, like, I, well, I can't cut there because the damn song's still playing and we got to right. get to the other portion. Yeah. So. Right. That's interesting you said the pacing for this one. This is where I felt it went long. Really? Yeah. I love why we have these discussions. Because yeah, me too. I felt, because <laughs> our opposing views, uh, I felt this went long because there were moments where it was just, like, literally we see Kevin get up um, finish the transaction from a customer, walk across the room and talk, and we're like, uh, okay, do we really have to see everything in real time? And I felt that uh, was going way too long. It was like, this is where editing happens. Um, I enjoyed the conversation, but then when we actually follow them in the car and then back to his place, I was like, that conversation, it was great. It was long. That was like a long seven-minute dialogue. Scene. Yeah, it was, but I, I don't know. I just sort of enjoyed it. And to me, too, I huh, there was the threat of violence at the beginning of the third act mm-hmm. when Sharon pulled out a gun <laughs> in the car, right? And maybe it was just me, but it's like, was he going to see Kevin for another reason? Because it was Kevin that beat him up, right, mm-hmm. at school. Like, you know, after, and this is after the, the moment at the beach. And, I don't know. Kevin double-crosses him. <clears throat> Kevin, oh, double-crosses him. <laughs> Huge. And when he grows up to be what he becomes, you know, I was, like, wondering, is he going to go back for vengeance? Is he going to go, you ruined me or something? Uh, I'm glad it didn't go that way. But I was wondering, is that gun going to come into play? Why show a gun? Because we hadn't seen it. We hadn't seen a gun. Juan never used one or that we know of. Not, not that we saw in the movie. That third act specifically showed, like, it made our, you know, it was like, ooh, yeah. there could be some violence. Why is he going to see Kevin? Yeah. And, um, I never I took it that way, but um, but it's certainly an interesting point, and it, and it's certainly uh, why I could see you on the edge of your seat for that whole duration. Because especially if the guy's not talking, he's just eating food, and then yeah, when's this guy going to take out a gun? <laughs> it, it, it dawned on me until like and it, right up until like they got to is he waiting for people to leave? Like what's 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 happening in this scene? Uh, but when he tells him, I've never been, nobody else has ever touched me that way before. And then again, I also didn't know where the scene was going when, when Kevin says, hey, do you remember, uh, I forget the girl's name. Mm-hmm. And he, he ends up, he shows that he has baby pictures. I was like, oh. <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> didn't see that coming. And neither did Sharon. Uh, but it was just very interesting dynamics playing throughout that, for me, that entire diner scene into Kevin's apartment. So. Absolutely. Marissa, how did you take it? Yeah, I mean, I mm. thought the diner scene was great. I think um, I think this is where editing does help in film, where sometimes it is better to cut back and forth, because if mm-hmm. you actually do watch people talk back and forth for a long time in real time, it can drag out. And this is where I felt like it dragged out, because we saw him pour the glass of wine over and over again. We saw him actually eat his meal at real time, and like, 
moving along. I, I just liked it because of the nuances of the performances as it was happening. But yeah, performances you were know, great. I think it's being just timing. comfortable, not knowing mm. what to say, so I'm just going to stuff my mouth. Uh, the drinking, which he says I don't drink, and then um, he just chucks it, <laughs> it mm. down. Uh, so that's how it worked for me. You know, and we do have to talk about Juan and Marshala Ali because yep. he's Marshall getting. I. Uh, he's getting so much. So, yeah, so let's, uh, let's talk about it. Uh, they were they they were skeptical because of House of Cards. They didn't know, you know, um, not necessarily what they would get, but they just didn't want a, a cloud over that, you know. Um, but then once they met him, <laughs> they were like, "Hey, all right, you're it." Yeah, I thought he was great. Um, for the and the, I think my problem is it's not really a problem, but the, <laughs> the thing is like I liked his character so much. When he went away, I wanted him to come back. I was like, okay, this film is kind of... He's a big character. When, and throughout watching it, I'm like, when is he going to come back? When, in, when is Juan and Teresa going to come back? Because I like them so much. And it was just kind of unfortunate that you build such likable characters and you never see him again. Um, but too. I thought he was great because he was a great surrogate father that um, black, black and little and Sharon needed growing up and i just wanted to see more of him right yeah i mean i don't disagree particularly since there has been so much time and attention and and award and praise uh, shown you know thrown his way deserving i too felt much like you oh oh so that's it we're not gonna where did he go yeah where did he go where did they go um because they were they played such an integral part of Sharon's life, even more so than um than, than than Paula, you know, Naomi Harris. And they were the one bright spot. <clears throat> and um even as a you know, he was a drug dealer with a heart. <laughs> if you know, I mean I don't know how else to say it. But uh especially Teresa though. Teresa, you know, as played by Janelle Monet, she was she was fantastic. She's yeah. fantastic. And she knows what her boyfriend does, you know? But uh, she but was But that amazing. didn't deter, like, her character. Ooh. Like, no, because we're still going to, like, give you that kind of <clears throat> unconditional love that he needed. Absolutely. Like, they fed him. They gave him clothes. They gave him shelter. They were the parents that he needed in his life. And I think it was just kind of sad that they weren't as consistent as they could have been for him. I, I just wanted to know how he got the crown, how he ended up taking over, and obviously, you know, one influences his life, but you, like you said, it's a cyclical. Um, obviously, I do want to, I want to talk about Janelle Monet for a sec, but before, um, there is, I wanted to talk about the teenage Kevin, um, who was played by Jarrell Jerome, and I hope I'm pronouncing his, his name correctly, I think that this this teenager, uh, who was found in the theater program at LaGuardia High School at the Performing Arts uh, in New York City, he was just graduating, and he had already turned eighteen. But consider what that boy, what those two boys, had to do in filming what for teenagers, even as actors, had to be a difficult scene. And it was filmed not as gratuitous, not as exploitive. Uh, and again, picking the right actors means everything. And um, Gerald Jerome in that role, uh, I think 
he too is a character that's grappling in a sense with his sexuality and what's going on, and he turns on his best friend. Mm-hmm. I think that 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 kid deserves credit as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I really do. I think he really, uh, yeah, I think he's he sold it, and it can't, and it couldn't have been that could not have been easy. Not so. I agree. And uh, just a quick trivia thing: um, uh, the the moments where he, when Juan is teaching Little how to swim, those were real. Meaning that Little did not actually know how to, swim. to swim, but now he does. Yeah. So it's a great scene too. Yeah, it felt real and authentic. And and it was baptismal. It, it, I mean, a little bit. Yeah. It was a little bit. Ba- yeah, yeah. I thought first back. it was. I was like, wait. Yeah. I have your hold your head and all yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but let's talk about Teresa. Um, you had wanted to talk about Teresa, so let's uh, let's talk about her. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, you know what? I, first off, like kudos to her. She's got two great movies out <laughs> right now. Um, Both Academy Award nominated. Yes. Yeah. That she's associated with. So, uh, congrats! You know, th- and two completely different characters. Yeah, I think Jenna Monet is great, and I said it during our uh, the, the, um, Hidden Figures anatomy that she has a great acting career ahead of her because it can be tiring to see artists try to transition to actors and it just seems like too forced that they're trying to build themselves but janelle's actually talented she can learn the craft and actually do it well and the fact that she's in these you know um movies that are getting accolades and recognition i think that's great for her because i can't wait to see what other films she's going to take on yeah, you know, and I, I couldn't say more. Um, I only knew of Janelle Monet. I, I knew her as a music artist. Not that mm-hmm. I have any of her music on mm-hmm. my iPod, but for some reason, she landed on my radar uh, via videos that I had seen. Um, I'd seen her on TV performing somewhere live or doing whatever, and I know last year she was in a big Pepsi Super Bowl commercial. But I always found her to be strikingly stunning. And she had a charisma. There was just something about her that I was like, I don't own her music, but I can't take my eyes off her. There's just something she has. She just oozes a charisma when she's on in the videos. And I wanted to follow her when I found out that she was in Hidden Figures and in this movie. And she takes that charisma with her. And shes I think she's playing it extremely smart, much like how she would play her music career. Because what I didn't know, that a lot of people compare her R&B performance music to like James Brown. Which mm-hmm. I should try to look her up and listen to her. Um, but again... She comes across as someone who's intelligent and smart, with a good sense of humor. She, throughout the awards show season, it could have been the Golden Globes, um, or one of those award shows, I think it was the Golden Globes, she's quoted as saying something to the effect of black, white, brown, it doesn't matter, we all bleed the same color. And I was like, amazingly insightful, amazingly smart, without being crude, crass, putting anybody down and saying it. It's like, you just said something that is going to stick with me now. What a great way to put that about breaking down race, even though we know that there's this issue. 
she performed this role. I bought her as being the surrogate mom. And she could play tender, and she was joking around. She goes, obviously, you've never fixed a bed before, and you think that you're going to... You're going to make a crappy bed so that you can have me come in and mm-hmm. fix the bed. I really like that scene a lot, too. Uh, I, truly, I, yeah, I think, you know, she has she has star power as an actor written all over her if she decides to go that role. Um, we've already seen her in two, like you said, different movies in which every time she's on screen, it's hard not to, like, just watch her. I agree. So. I I mm-hmm. agree, and I think that's uh, you know, and it'll, it'll, I, I she she can control her destiny in a lot of ways. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to sort of see that. And the thing is, too, is that they were looking for Latina actors, uh, and it was written for to be a Cuban American, and we also thought this would be a great opportunity for someone to come in and play that role, and that was unexpected. And so they definitely they they even the, the casting. And, and such, they even say that they totally went out of the box mm-hmm. to, to to cast her, and uh, there was unconventional choices. And haven't looked to the music world to uh, the other roles they thought of her, mm-hmm. and that's how she won over the role. Yeah. Well, I'm glad she did. But um, speaking of music, uh, we, since we talked about production and things like that at length, um, why don't we why don't we sort of skip to uh, music in this regard? Um, and a very interesting, you know, this has the weirdest. <laughs> it, w- w- when sound, you sort of talk about dynamic range, right? Dynamic range is the the, mm-hmm. the great, you know, um, if if things are at a consistent volume, it has a low dynamic range. If you know, there's there's things that go boom and they're really loud, and then very quiet moments, then it has a, a big dynamic range, right? And I feel like this movie had that both. You know, we mm-hmm. talked about that that there's moments of silence. Um, so it has a dynamic range in that, but it also has a dynamic range in terms of its music. When do you ever hear, like, orchestral type of music and then cut to, uh, you know, gangster for gangster rap type of music? Right. Um, and both used effectively. Yeah. Almost as if, almost as if a mashup. <laughs> well, the term is chopped and screwed. <laughs> Um, Marissa, do you want to explain this a little bit more? I have the, I have a, yeah, so of official thing too Nick, as well that I can Nicholas add to it. Nicholas Brittell was the composer for this film. He used a lot of piano and violin um, for this, so he uh, he kept the, he kept the mic close to the violin um, with soft hammering of the piano. So, and this is a mixing style known as chopped and screwed, which is where the the music track is layered on top of itself and slowed down a few octaves. So basically, it's like the same music layered on top of itself, right. but slower and and lower. Um, and he's also a he's a Juilliard and Harvard grad, so he's been playing music since a young age of ten. So, but he he used a lot of orchestral yeah. um, instruments for this. Yeah, chopped and screwed is um, developed. In the Houston hip hop scene in the 1990s, yeah. Um, so there you go. Sort of um, DJ Screw apparently is largely recognized for the innovation. Um, this is not a technique I heard of before. Same here. Uh, nor mm-hmm. have I ever heard of DJ Screw, but uh, but again, it, it sort of it, I, I liked it. I enjoyed it. It worked. Can, I, you know, I have to bring something up since we are talking about music and how used for effect. You know, we're listening to the opening song here. It's going to take me back to uh, when we talked about Jackie. 
yeah. how music is used to ill effect. Yeah. You know, and again, they were trying to go for something different. Somehow, that movie got nominated for score. <laughs> I, this one again is using something that is not necessarily at this point in time mainstream. Let's say, right? Would you mm-hmm. agree? It's not mainstream, correct? To I my mean, knowledge, yeah. Um, <clears throat> but you have a guy, uh, you know, who is a composer. He did the Big Short. He did music for the big short, too. Um, you know, I just think that it fits with this movie uh, very well. And when you're working on a limited budget, you're using the resources that you have. And if you're bending the audio, uh, it, it worked. And it gave us something, you know, listening to classical music done this way. It made it, it's like, hey, I, hey, I, I recognize it. But it's different, yeah. <laughs> and it worked. Absolutely. I loved it. It was good. Yeah. Um, so definitely, definitely check out the the soundtrack. It's uh, it's quite. An, it, I don't think you'll hear a similar one for a while. No, and you, it captures the feel of the movie as well, right? Would yeah. you agree? Yeah, and I think yeah. also the song that was playing uh, in his car when he was with Kevin near the end, going to Kevin's place. I think that music also just resembled what Kev, uh, what Black was life like in that particular <clears throat> stage in his life. Agreed. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. uh, it's, I think it's the, it's the Barbara Lewis song, right? Uh, it's the one that they play in the, the diner. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, the lyrics of that couldn't be more fitting. Yeah. And what's, I wonder what's, if we can bring that up. Just yeah. To, we started the song with it. Well, the thing is, like, there is a popular song that came out and that I believe this is like a rendition of that song. Right. Well, it's just because it, it's, it's also um, you know, one of those things. Uh, a lot of times, like I don't understand the lyrics because just things are moving so fast. This you can hear the lyrics so perfect, and that, mm-hmm. that, that that which then becomes poignant. It becomes like a character. Bring that up a little bit. Yeah. So and this is an old song. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um. So it's almost like in that moment of silence between the two characters, this becomes another character that's talking absolutely. to the both of them. Absolutely. Um, so absolutely fantastic technique. Um, so there you go. Uh, why don't we move on to uh, to reception? Which uh, <laughs> apparently it's getting a lot of good reception. This movie almost at a hundred percent. Just two points away from being 100%, which is uh, what uh, I would consider sp- the space between us almost the exact opposite. <laughs> that was uh, two points away from being nothing. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it was interesting. I had to find uh, an LA Times article uh, to find what the budget could be. And that LA Times article is quoted as being less than $5 million budget. Okay, mm. which is interesting, and and it's released. Well, wasn't by... it? Um, uh, sorry, not to cut you off. Oh, no. but uh, uh, they asked Barry what the budget was, and he said less than five hundred million. <laughs> <laughs> that was his. It was like okay, I hope so. That's awesome. But you know, and it's released by another one of those forward-thinking companies, A twenty-four. This is the company that did Ex Machina. Um, 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 Spring Breakers, whether you liked or disliked that movie. Again, they're coming out with uh, some great independent 
movies and that that other studios would find risk taking but a24 is on the forefront and i'm really glad that they're around um you know so we're looking at i don't know their their estimated hard drives and advertising could have been around 15 to 20 million all in including uh you know the budget and it's like you said 98 percent on rotten tomatoes um <clears throat> I've yet to see a cinema score on it. Um, I know people that I talked with. I really enjoyed this movie. Uh, it is interesting to note that this movie was released uh, October 24, 21st, 2016. Limited capacity. And um, its its wide release was <laughs> November 18th of 2016. So that's a lo- so almost that, that's, a month later. Yeah. It's coming out on DVD on Tuesday. So. That's funny. And we're so. talking about it now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, uh, just looking at, I'm trying to find, uh, and I'll get there, uh, forgive me, but it's box office at this point for being out as long as it's been, yeah, it's about 20 million bucks. Mm-hmm. 20 million for a movie that costs less than five. You know, 824 has to be extremely happy, and plus, it'll continue through Oscar you know, we'll see what happens uh, Oscar-wise. Yeah, I mean, um, Herschel Ali has already <clears throat> won um, an award for his portrayal. Um, he won best... Uh, I'm just siphoning through my notes as well. Um, yeah, he... Oh, my goodness, my notes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, they, they won best drama at That's the Golden it. Globes, but um, he also, they're also nominated... Um, and he, he won SAG. He won a SAG award for Best Actor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. New drama for this yeah. film. Now. And it has eight Oscar nominations for this year's. This is the uh, fourth African American director to be nominated for a director. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In the Oscars. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay. So there's. Yeah. There, there's a lot of nominations for this film. Yeah. Which is actually good considering the whole debacle of last year's Academy Awards, like Oscars so white, and we definitely have diversity in this absolutely. year's Academy Awards. Yeah, race. absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, sure. these are just great movies. <clears throat> no, I agree. I can't wait for the summer. Uh, in, in Moonlight, all fences are hidden. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> it's a good one. <laughs> hey, listen. Coming out, 2017. <laughs> classic. Wow. <laughs> classic, classic. Uh, look at you. It might be. Oh. And then next week you can cry your apology and all will be forgiven. <laughs> listen, uh, listen, I don't apologize because I didn't mess up the name of the movie. I just said this is a new movie. So I have no remorse. Um, Nor should you. Listen, you know, here's the thing. I did listen. What, if you. Uh, one of the things, like I said, I don't. You know, one of the things that I really do appreciate is that I, you know, all of us look at these movies as movies, and the fact that you know we're, whether it's Ghostbusters, the female Ghostbusters, or Hidden Fences, uh, or Hidden Figures. See, now Moonlight. Cry your apology now. Yeah, I, I apologize. See, that's what it's done <laughs> to me. But um, you know, we, we you know a good movie is a good movie at the end of the day, and a bad movie is a bad movie. True. And um, I appreciate that these are good movies. Right. You know, and uh, and and by that, just for anyone who didn't listen to us last year, um, we didn't we didn't think that the Oscars were. Like the the problem was that there were so many movies that got snubbed that could have been part of the Oscars last year that weren't able to. 
True. So, yeah, no, absolutely, and you're right. And again, it this movie to me, I, I don't, I just approached it as I don't didn't matter. You could have taken this storyline mm-hmm. and put it in the Bronx. You could have taken this storyline and plugged it into South Boston. Okay. Which, L.A. L.A. You know, anywhere. anywhere. Oh, it's L.A. Anywhere. But I, I was picking, you know, particularly South Boston, who's had its issues with homosexuality, no matter what color you are. And they've had their issues with, with race as well. You could take it now... That's why I watched this movie, and again, I don't care if you're plaid. This is why this movie, to me, works. Um, you know, racism and, and this type of phobia, uh, it affects everybody. And as Janelle said, no matter, you cut, you, you bleed, we all bleed the same color. Uh, it's so simple, but yet it's so true. And that's why this movie, to me, was made rather special, because it didn't force... It didn't force any of that <clears throat> down my throat. I didn't feel like I was learning a lesson watching this movie. Right, no. No. It could have been that way, no. but it wasn't. Absolutely. Marissa, anything to add? Um, yeah, I really I really like that portrayal of a seemingly realistic situation of someone just growing up in a harsh reality. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was portrayed... It. I, I'm glad that like our world... Has be is more receptive to you know gay and homosexuality nowadays. If you made this film twenty years ago, it would not have received the accolades it is now. I'm not even um, entirely sure it would have been made. Yeah, exactly. But like, I like how Hollywood is catching up to this, and we can spotlight on it and and say it is a great film. And I think it was done tastefully. And, and handled with grace for something that could be a really sensitive subject to a lot of people. Absolutely. Um, well, a couple of things from, from us. Number one, we, we want to know your guys' thoughts on this movie, absolutely, 100%, um, especially given the subject matter. Um, what's the thing that you relate to most? Um, as we talked about, that's, that's the sort of strength of this movie is that it is relatable. Um, and I think there's many characters you can choose to be. Or, or empathize with because maybe they've been in your life. So very curious to know that fact. Um, secondly, uh, another thing y- you can do for us, we do these podcasts for free with minimal ads. And so one of the things every so often um, we try to do a survey, um, which helps us um, in, a, in a much deeper, greater way. Um, and so there's a survey on podcastone.com, and you can go, to, go there and click on the survey banner, or you can go directly to podcastone.com slash my survey um, and sort of take that, that survey. It takes less than five minutes, to be honest. Um, it's completely anonymous. Um, all we ask is that, you know, you list in there. There's a list of options in terms of the shows you listen to. So please, you know, if there's other shows that you listen to that are on the list, pick them. But also pick us. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not like you have one choice of show that you listen to, and that's the great part about it. And also, one of the things we respect about you, we know there's there's many options for you to choose from. And the fact that whether you come back every single time or just for the movies that you love or once every year, whatever it is, it uh, it isn't lost on us. Your time is precious, and we appreciate you taking the time to listen or watch. Absolutely. Absolutely. Agreed. And, you know, when when I look at the views... Of, of certain movies and, and we've <clears throat> we run a gamut of, mm-hmm. of film we do 
the the largest commercial film will do independent movies like Moonlight. And it's very interesting, because I always do look at the views, that even a movie like La La Land, uh, when you look at the views, it rivals a Rogue One. Okay? And granted, uh, some of the movies we did last week, like, like Jackie, not a huge movie, right? But we're still garnering 250-plus views, which, to me, that says something. That's really solid. So... I'll take somebody watching Jackie as well as I'll take the, the, the 200,000 or whatever that we get for, for doing Rogue One uh, and even La La Land. You know, the whole thing is that this business perpetuates itself and they're going to be on video or Blu-ray or streaming. However you watch that in the secondary market and we're always going to be here. We'll yeah. always have, we have a library now. 300 shows? Are you kidding me? Yeah, we're like more than 350 shows. Oh my god, and they've kept me along for the ride. Uh, truly, though, I am honored because this is, this is, this is, there's no other show like us in which we just talk movies. And, and, and not to this, that, you know, I think everyone's, everyone's always very negative and they don't, you know, they don't, uh, I don't think they have quite the love. And they don't go into the uh, production elements, for sure. No, but this is the kind of stuff that you would talk about. If the three of us went to a movie, right, together, and we've done this before, we could go into a bar after. This is similar to the conversation without having our research. It's like We would talk about the editing, the pacing, the cinematography. We would talk about this. Movie lovers, that's what you do, whether it's a Star Wars or whether it's Moonlight. And, uh, you know, I'm really proud to be part of this team. I truly am. It is a, it's an honor to be in front of this camera with sitting next to you and talking about this. It's fun. Well, there you go. Um, well, if you want to, uh, if you want to keep in touch with all of us at D Movies seventeen oh one at Serafini TV. <laughs> That's right. Um, definitely check it out. Uh, we've got Lego Batman movie coming out. We've got John Wick two and a whole plethora of movies coming out. Um, I'm trying to get over ten. Uh, Twitter supporters. So <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm still in single digits. Support Dimitri. <laughs> and we're doing an Academy Awards show too. We will. Yeah. We will talk about the Academy <laughs> Awards. Um, uh, for those of you worried, we will. We will. Not sure 100 percent when, but we'll try to do Lion at some point. Can't promise it, but gonna try as best we can. We fit in Moonlight, so extremely happy about that. Um, lots to look forward to. Whether Black Panther, um, Star Wars Episode Eight, Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast. Yes. That's going to be a good one. So lots to look forward to. Thank you guys for joining Kong. us. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, we'll see you next time on another Anatomy of Movie. Bye for so now. So long, folks. From producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the rest of the Anatomy of a Movie staff, we would like to thank you for listening and subscribing to the show. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to email or tweet us. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been Anatomy of a Movie.